This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, two Colorado women headed to Washington later this week, but for very different reasons. Coming up, a Denver Democrat who will march the day after the inauguration to protest the new president's policies. First, though, a Pueblo Republican who will attend Donald Trump's inauguration. She is State Representative Clarice Navarro. She served on Trump's Hispanic Advisory Council during the campaign. And Representative, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be with you today. What do you most want to hear from the new president in his speech Friday? I'm looking forward to hearing his vision for America. Um, Looking forward to celebrating with so many people as we transition to the new administration and just looking forward to a good time. The vision in particular, is there something specific you want to hear, a policy laid out, um, something that puts a finer point perhaps on a broader message he brought during the campaign? Mr. Donald Trump-elect has brought up so many important issues. Um, What we're facing right now is um, Obamacare and, you know, to help Americans have affordable health care that is truly affordable. And so you'd like him to speak to Obamacare and perhaps the plan that they would replace Obamacare with? That's correct. There is a need for health care. And the bottom line is that, you know, if we have the need and demand. And if you add that to the free market and competition, then our costs will be driven down. I understand that you also attended an inauguration for George W. Bush. What, if anything, do you expect might be different this time? You know, this is really a celebration for um, our president-elect. Each celebration is something that we, we, you know, we treasure here in America. And we're so honored to be part of those celebrations. I think that, you know, just having everyone come together and celebrate It's the same, you know, for both. It's the same for both. So you don't expect big differences. You are not just attending the inauguration. You are co-host of a gala the night before the Latino inaugural 2017. The invitation says this will offer high-ranking networking with officials from the incoming administration, as well as thought leaders and influencers. Do you expect President-elect Trump to attend? We are absolutely hoping that he will join us for our event as well as uh, Vice President-elect. They have both been invited, and I know that he has a very busy schedule, but to have him stop by would, would be really nice. Why the need for a specifically Latino event, do you think? I think it's important. Um, our advisory group worked really hard throughout the summer, and we just wanted to come together and celebrate together. And we've decided to do a gala and open it up to everyone else to come and celebrate with us. We appreciate his vision for making America great again. I want Americans to have jobs. I want a safe America. And I want all children to have equal equality education. And that just gives us a time to um, have, you know, internet work together talk to different um, leaders throughout the nation, and, you know, just share our ideas. And I understand you will also be sharing Pueblo chilies brought from Colorado. Absolutely. I'm very excited. We have worked together with the Pueblo chili growers, and they have shipped Pueblo chilies to the event, and we have sent sent special um, recipes 
to integrate into the event. And we're just very excited here in Southern Colorado. You've made several references to your work with Trump's Hispanic Advisory Council, a group of 25 people from around the country who met with him on issues of concern to that community. And uh, that group met for the first time in the summer. Were you able to speak to Mr. Trump specifically about anything? I spoke to him about the importance of Colorado, what our needs are here, um, our, you know, our health care, our education, jobs in the economy. I took that opportunity to really give him a sense of what Colorado needs. And would you care to put a finer point on what that is? And, and did you sway him in, in any regard? I don't know that I swayed him in any regard. However, I did make him very aware of the issues that were important to Coloradans. A few he was very receptive. He took time, um, I believe it was an hour and a half, to meet with each of us. And I thought that was really important for him and let him know, you know, we were important and took that opportunity to really, you know, make it make it important for him to know what Coloradans needed. A few, a few weeks after that committee was announced, Mr. Trump gave a speech in Phoenix about immigration, and he talked a lot about border security, said he would deny legal status to anyone who stays in the country illegally. And several of the committee members criticized that speech, and at least one resigned after it. What, what did you think of that speech? I believe, you know, if you're illegal, is illegal. Everyone, you know, wants a safe America. We have certain policies that are in place. Um, and I think those are very important to Americans to know that they feel safe. Do you envision the kind of mass deportations he talked about earlier in the campaign? You know, I'm I'm not certain that that's a that that's even possible. What we are what he's working for is to make America safe, and absolutely we do need to work on that. But America's safety comes first. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with State Representative Clarice Navarro from Pueblo. She's headed to Washington later this week to attend the inauguration of Donald Trump. In a few minutes, we'll speak with another Colorado woman who is headed to Washington for different reasons, and that is to march uh, in the Women's March the following day. Uh, That particular speech from Trump was followed a few weeks later by that controversial video in which he used disparaging language about women. Was there a point at all where you reconsidered your support for him during the campaign? I've always been a supporter of Mr. Donald Trump. Mr. Trump's vision for America is more important than some off-the-cuff remarks. Trump won Pueblo County, where you live, by uh, less than 400 votes, but it was the first time historically Democratic Pueblo had gone for a Republican since 72, when Richard Nixon beat George McGovern. And we should say registered Democrats heavily outnumber Republicans there. I'd like to know what is most at stake for you personally. So you've talked about some of the issues broadly important to Colorado, but for you personally in this election. You know, it's my honor to serve Southern Colorado and most importantly, Pueblo is a Democrat-leaning district, and I have won my third term. I feel that my work here is very important, and my constituents appreciate the work that I'm doing, 
And I'm just very thankful that they have elected me to serve my third term. All right. Um, so is there an issue that is of particular importance to you personally, though? You know, like I said before, you know, our health care, education for our children and our economy are always going to be the top of our priority list. This was a very divisive election, and Trump acknowledged that in his victory speech, quoting, Now it is time for America to bind the wounds of division, have to get together, he said. Then, uh, New Year's Day Eve, he tweeted, A happy new year to all, including to my many enemies and those who have fought me and lost so badly, they just don't know what to do. Love. What did you make of that message as his first uh, of the new year or just before it to the world? Well, Ryan, again, Trump's vision for America is more important than some off-the-cuff remarks. He deeply cares for Americans, and that's where he's coming from. And he wants to, again, keep Americans safe and, you know, help America prosper. Won't those off-the-cuff remarks, though, become salient when he is president of the United States? Mr. Donald Trump has Americans' um, interests at heart. He is working to make sure that America is prosperous, make sure America is safe, and that is his goal. And do you think that off-the-cuff remarks like that in a position that requires a lot of diplomacy could make America less safe? You know, Ryan, I'm not going to go into those off-the-cuff remarks, Um, he believes in America, he loves America, and he wants Americans to be safe. All right. You're starting your third term as state representative, as you mentioned. What do you hope to bring back from these next few days that will shape what you do, perhaps at the state house? Well, thank you so much. I'm so proud to represent Southern Colorado. Um, like you did mention, I'm serving my third term. I will stay focused on the needs of House District 47. And, you know, I'm very excited and, you know, my constituents have really asked that I share the experience with them. And that's what I'm going to bring back. I want to wrap up with a hypothetical. I want to say that you're on an airplane uh, this week headed to Washington. You're flying there. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Let's say you find yourself sitting next to someone who's attending the protest gathering in Washington the day after the inauguration. It's called the Women's March on Washington. What one question would you ask that marcher, do you think? I wouldn't have a question. I just want to say that they have their right to a peaceful protest. Millions of women across America have the right to vote for Mr. Trump. And I think that they have the right for their voices to be heard as well. Clarice Navarro, Republican state representative from Pueblo, who will attend the inauguration Friday and co-hosts a Latina gala the night before. Emily Bobrick of Denver is headed to D.C., but for different reasons. The Democrat will protest Trump's policies Saturday during the Women's March on Washington. She says she's a political newcomer volunteering for her first campaign just this past spring. And a welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Organizers have said they expect 150,000 people or more at this march. What do you see as the purpose of the event? Well, for me, it's really just about solidarity. Um, That was kind of my motivation behind going. I felt 
very despondent after the election, um, was very shocked about the results, as I think a lot of people were, and felt that I needed to act swiftly and loudly. And it just felt very important to me, it does feel very important to me to go and stand in solidarity with people who do not approve of this incoming administration. So when I hear solidarity, I I hear you yearning for togetherness, to mm-hmm. be with like-minded people. Is yes. that true? Yes, very much. Is there something in particular that you object to about this administration, which has not yet begun? I should say um all, pretty much all of it um i don't even i'm not sure where to begin on that um i just i think that um i think trump sent a lot of things campaigning um obviously that mobilized the popular vote in terms of workers american jobs um and i think you know, I think there are a lot of people that are very despondent about Washington politics and we're really looking for change. And so I think being um, a Washington outsider, I think that worked to his advantage. And particularly now, as he is nominating his cabinet, um, I just don't think that he is backing up anything that he said that he stood for. During what do you the campaign. mean? In terms of like the drain the swamp message? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in terms of. Um, Particularly in being there for workers, you know, when you're talking about wanting to be there for the American worker, but you nominate a secretary of labor who's anti-union, that doesn't compute to me. Though not everyone will equate the two. Right. uh, Being anti-union and and, uh, pro-worker. So is the day after the inauguration, do you think, a little soon to protest the new president? No. I actually don't think it was it's soon enough. I wish we could do it on the day of the inauguration. Um, I think, um, you know, like I said, after the election, I was ready to just start working um, to resist and and to protest and to have voices heard by the people who don't stand for his policies. And what do you have most at stake in this next administration? Where does its direction affect you most personally? For me, I think it's mostly about ethics um, and morals. I think um, aside from, you know, it's it's really hard to say where the direction of it is going to go. Um, but, but is there an issue? Is there something about your life that could be most affected by the new administration? Well, I think healthcare is an issue, um, particularly as a woman and women's rights in general. Um you know, it's it's really hard to say. There's kind of this wait and see mentality, which I don't really subscribe to because I think that we're already seeing what's going to come out of of the administration. And in terms of actual effect on my personal life, it's really it's hard to say. Um, it could be if I chose to stick my head in the sand and not pay attention, it may not affect my day to day life all that much. Um, however. I feel that supporting this administration is a normalization of racism, of misogyny, of discrimination, of xenophobia and all, you know, this I don't need to tell your tell your listeners about all this litany of of things that he is stands for or has been accused of. Um and I just can't abide by it. I just feel, you know, I mean, a lot of the tenant behind the women's march is women's rights are human rights and human rights are human rights. And I think a lot of those rights um, stand to be violated by this administration, and I just morally cannot support that. I wonder what you made of what we just heard from Representative Navarro, that it's not his off-the-cuff remarks you ought to pay attention to. It's it's his desire and expression to 
make America great again to employ people who are unemployed? You know, um, I am all for supporting workers and for American job growth. Um, but again, I think, um, you know, she mentioned you don't need to listen to those off-the-cuff things. He said it's really in, in, in the overall message. But I think that it's just normalizing, um, like I said, racism, misogyny, discrimination. And so to just accept those things and say, oh, he just said that and we don't need to listen to that. We need to listen to this is just normalizing that behavior. And I think a lot of the misogyny and the racism that is seen around the country um, is rooted in that normalization. It's just not acceptable. Speaking with Emily Bobrick of Denver, she's headed to Washington, D.C. for the Women's March that takes place the day after the inauguration. And I want to pose to you a question that we posed to uh, Mr. Trump's supporter, um, Clarice Navarro, uh, which is that if, if you're on a plane headed to D.C. and you sit next to a Trump supporter, what would you ask them? Well, I guess I would want to know about, about their motivations and what are the things, how they can justify that vote. It's I'm having a hard time with that because I really feel like I want to understand and I want to bridge differences, but I feel I am so strongly against him and his administration and his policies and his just outlandish Twitter tirades that I don't know that there's anything that anyone could say to me that would really justify that vote, particularly as a woman. I just can't understand how anyone thinks that him leading our country is a good idea. So I'm open to those discussions. I don't want to be closed-minded. I'm not a closed-minded person. Um, but I, 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 I don't know if the, that there's anything that anyone could say it's, to change my feelings about it that. It sounds like you don't know Trump supporters in your daily life. Would you say that's true? No, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so you haven't had those kinds of conversations before? No. And, and yet I think at the beginning of the conversation, you acknowledge that there are people who feel left out of the economy, deeply frustrated mm-hmm. and responded to Trump's message. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it sounds like there is a, uh, a shred of understanding in you. A little bit, a little bit. I mean, I can I can kind of under I, I relate to the need for change. Um, I was a big Sanders supporter in the election because I felt like there was there was change there. And I think a lot of people are just really dissatisfied with status quo Washington politics. And I think he made some promises that that was going to change. And I think he's doing the exact opposite of that in putting his administration in place. Before we go, do you think the march will achieve something? I do. I feel like it's a, a the start of a new um not necessarily a new wave of feminism, but I feel like it's a start of a, a feminist movement. And um, there are a lot of principles of unity um, behind the march. And um, I think just having that many people come together um, and stand up for each other, I think, is is really powerful. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Emily Bobrick is from Denver. She'll take part in the Women's March on Washington Saturday. Earlier, we heard from Trump supporter Clarice Navarro, who will attend the inauguration Friday. CPR and NPR will offer special coverage of the inaugural starting Friday morning. Coming up Thursday on this program, what young people want from the next president. We'll gather together a small group of high school students in the CPR performance studio. Up next, doctors have much to learn about an illness that affects some marijuana users. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Emergency physicians in Colorado are sounding a warning as more states legalize marijuana. They say doctors should be on the lookout for an illness that afflicts marijuana users. There are a lot of unanswered questions about it because cannabis research has been thwarted for so long. Dr. Kenan Hurd is a toxicologist at the CU School of Medicine. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Dr. Hurd, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. What happens when someone is hit by this? So this um, syndrome will, ha- will cause a lot of abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Patients are really, really uncomfortable. They sort of have uncontrollable dry retching, abdominal pain, and feel terrible. And how long can this last? Uh, it can last for several days. It's a recurrent disease, so patients can get it, get a little better for a few days, and then it can come back, and they can even have multiple episodes over this over the course of several months. And it's not clear exactly why someone who could be using marijuana for literally years and never had a problem all of a sudden starts developing these symptoms. What's the medical term for it? Uh, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Okay. Is it a newly recognized condition? Well, it was really recognized originally around 2004 in Australia. Um, It's something that we've started seeing a lot more in Colorado with the increased availability and the stronger marijuana strains that are are out there. So really in the past sort of five to seven years, it's become much more prevalent in, uh, in our area. So how often are emergency rooms seeing patients come in? So in our emergency department, we'll see patients most days or even on a weekly basis. And talking to my colleagues around the state, pretty much uh, everyone is seeing it to some extent. Now, I'll always put it in relative context. This is not anywhere near the extent of patients that we see who are consuming alcohol or other drugs. Um, but it's certainly something that you know we never used to see. And now we're seeing patients with this on a fairly regular basis. Who's afflicted by this? So we don't have a really good characterization of this yet. I can tell you in our emergency department, the majority of people that we see are people who are um, most commonly using marijuana. So younger, a little bit higher proportion of males uh, and people who are using, you know, report heavy use usually daily to weekly and for months to years. So these aren't just college students trying it out one time or someone, a, a marijuana tourist who's coming and trying pot for the first time? No, we occasionally see those folks if they get a little too much marijuana, but generally the people, well, the the people that we're seeing with this cannabinoid hyperemesis are frequent heavy users. And any idea why they're getting this? It's a really good question, and we don't have a great scientific answer. Um, Based on the fact that it's usually seen in people who are frequent heavy users, what we see with other drugs is frequently the nervous system changes uh, in response to the the constant stimulation from the active chemicals in the drug, something like you'd see with someone who becomes uh, dependent on opioids or alcohol, for example. And as you are exposed to the drug for heavy amounts of the drug for a long period of time, your body makes adaptations to that. uh, And then those adaptations can cause the effects that we're seeing. Now, we don't have any real good science to explain what exactly those adaptations are. That's very much a 30,000-foot view, and we'd like to get some more information because it will help us understand the cause of this disease and potentially even some other therapeutic ways that uh, cannabinoids could be used. And does this relate at all to increasing amounts of THC in marijuana these days? That's the ingredient that makes you high. Well, we don't, again, we don't know for sure, but certainly this is something that um, in the, you know, 
1990s and 2000s, where we did see, you know, there were a fair number of people using marijuana, but the marijuana had much less THC in it. We didn't see this. Now, the other thing that obviously happened is with the decriminalization of marijuana, there's increased availability. So I think with the increased availability, increased amount of THC in the products that are being used, that's what's led to us seeing more of these cases. There are lots of ways to use marijuana. Does this happen through smoking and use of edibles? The vast majority of the patients that we're seeing in our emergency departments are smoking. I don't think we have really good information about uh, how often it occurs with each type of exposure. Uh, But my impression is that it's more common with smoking than with edibles. Can this have long-term health consequences for any of the folks that, that get it? So it's a good question. At this point, we don't have a clear answer to that. It appears to go away in the vast, vast majority of people who stop smoking marijuana, whether it will come back if they start smoking again, even you know to a lesser extent, we really don't know. In some people, it certainly does come back if they start using again. There's nothing that suggests there's any long-term damage that's done, but obviously this is something that's only been recognized for a few years, and we don't have a lot of real good long-term studies. You and other Colorado doctors have been noticing this for a while. Why are you trying to spread the word? Well, there's been a lot more interest to this with the recent elections and the increased uh, availability of marijuana in other states, and we think it's important that people are aware of this. This uh, kind of disease can trigger emergency department visits. It, it really can dramatically affect the people's lives. They're, they're miserable when this happens. It's going to keep them home from work. It's going to prevent them from doing the things that they need to do. And it also triggers a very extensive evaluation. Patients will get um, extensive laboratory testing, um, x-rays, CAT scans, all kinds of tests in the emergency department, because this can look like a lot of really serious diseases. And while this is serious, it's not life-threatening. And, and if we can let people know that this can occur, uh, and they can talk with their doctors, relay their their history of marijuana use. It may allay uh, and prevent some of the extensive workups, and it may it also suggests a way that these people can you know prevent this, uh, which is by cutting back or, or stopping their marijuana use for at least some period of time. And it's a cost issue too, because you're not going through all these tests if the doctors know what it is. Exactly, a cost issue and a patient safety issue, because we do know the more testing that people get um, when they don't have something that's going to be detected by the test increases the chance of finding something else that may lead to more testing and all the uh, adverse effects that's associated with that. In the history of marijuana opposition, scare tactics have been used like reefer madness. What would you tell someone who thinks this is just another example of that? Well, I, I certainly have I've heard a lot about that. And I, you know, at this point, All I would say is, you know, people who are going to use marijuana, that's their choice. And in Colorado right now, that's their privilege. We want people who are having these symptoms to be aware of this and to at least consider this. And when I approach someone in the emergency department, I provide them with some information and I say, look, we've looked for dangerous causes of your symptoms. And the good news is we didn't find anything. I think this may be contributing to why you're feeling like this. And I ask you to consider whether you want to try cutting back marijuana to see if it helps make you better. Dr. Hurd, thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm happy I could talk. Kenan Hurd is an ER doctor who specializes in toxicology. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about a disorder that affects regular marijuana users in some cases. 
Hospitals and the patients they serve are watching to see what's next for federal health programs like the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid. The new Trump administration and Republicans in Congress have promised big changes. CPR health reporter John Daly visited a clinic in Denver that has thrived under Obamacare. The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, changed the equation for hundreds of thousands of Coloradans. Folks like Carolyn Goodrich, who's visiting her doctor at Denver Health's Pena Family Health Center. What concerns do you have today? Just coming in for my diabetic checkup. Okay. Goodrich now gets insurance through her job as a pharmacy tech. A few years ago, she was uninsured. But Goodrich, who's a diabetic, discovered she qualified for Medicaid, the insurance program for low-income Americans. She was one of roughly 300,000 people who gained insurance when Medicaid expanded in Colorado. It was a great help to me because it was something that I could afford when I was on the Medicaid. I had nothing but good care. People like Goodrich have a lot at stake as Republicans look to dismantle and possibly replace Obamacare. The same could be said for the clinic she's visiting, the Pena Clinic. It's part of Denver Health, which is a safety net hospital, a public institution that provides services to all, whether they can pay or not. Right on the other side of x-ray is urgent care. Dr. Mike Russum practices family medicine and helps lead the clinic in this predominantly low-income and Hispanic neighborhood. Russum says when the clinic opened in April, it became a better option than going to Denver Health's main facility downtown. It's really a good location in terms of for patients to be able to access, but then patients don't have to go to the hospital anymore. A big part of the story here is people gaining insurance through Medicaid, A few years ago, about 40 percent of Denver Health's patients were uninsured. Obamacare and the Medicaid expansion cut that figure in half. That decreases the number of unpaid bills the hospital has to cover. And, Mike Russom says, that helped the bottom line. This clinic has benefited from Obamacare, and this population has benefited from Obamacare by the expansion of Medicaid. That's what helped make the economics work, putting a brand-new clinic in a high-poverty neighborhood. Dr. Simon Hambage is Denver Health's CEO of Community Health Services. He says the hospital was able to open the Pena Clinic because more patients were insured through Medicaid. The ACA made it possible for us to feel stable enough in our population that was not uninsured that we could invest in a new clinic like this. Hambage predicts the hospital will weather the storm if Obamacare is repealed and there are serious cuts to safety net programs like Medicaid and Medicare, as some Republicans have suggested. But he concedes it'd probably be harder to open new clinics in many neighborhoods. We'll survive. We may not be able to be as expansive because we we would be back to less secure times. The Colorado Hospital Association is watching the situation carefully. Chris Tholen is its chief financial officer. Tholen says Obamacare reforms let patients seek care even for pre-existing conditions that had denied them coverage. It also encouraged them to go to the doctor earlier. And in Colorado, that drove down emergency room visits by Medicaid patients 8 percent in the last few years. As a result, Tholen says, those patients got better, cheaper care. Whatever alternatives come forward, let's make sure we don't lose the benefits of the last four to six years that the Affordable Care Act has provided. Tholen says hospitals are bringing their concerns to Washington as Republicans consider repealing and replacing the ACA. 
a pair of national hospital groups issued a letter to President-elect Trump and Congress warning of huge losses, layoffs, and hospital closings if Obamacare is repealed without a satisfactory replacement. The overall message is the Affordable Care Act has been beneficial for hospitals and for other providers to care for patients and for the overall population. Back at the Pena Clinic, Carolyn Goodrich worries about the impact cuts to government programs could have on those with chronic health conditions. Her parents are covered by Medicare. One is a diabetic, the other suffers from congestive heart failure. And as a pharmacy tech, she sees customers choosing between mortgage payments or medications. I really don't think that there's good things coming out of our government if they change it. But changes could be coming soon as Republicans start to wrestle with how and when to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Just ahead, an African-American choreographer in Denver who has fought for civil rights on stage and off. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today on Martin Luther King Day, a fascinating bit of history that King heard one of his favorite hymns for the first time in Denver. The song is called If I Can Help Somebody. It was performed at King's funeral in 1968. Here's a version recorded recently at the University of Denver from the Spirituals Project Choir. The soloist is Claudette Sweet. wanted to find out more about If I Can Help Somebody and its Denver connections. And so we've invited Vern L. Howard to our studio. He chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission and knows this story. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Let me say that If I Can Help Somebody was written in 1945 by a woman named Alma Andrazzo. It was recorded by various gospel groups and by mainstream singers like Tennessee Ernie Ford. Doris Day did a version. But it seems that King didn't hear it until a visit to Denver in 1956, what was he doing here in 56? Uh, 1956, the New Hope Baptist Church in Denver was having their Women's Day program. And they had asked Dr. King to come and speak. The New Hope Baptist Church was pastored by M.C. Williams, and his wife was Anna Lee Williams. And as part of the program, she had sung the song. She was the singer. Yes, she and was. And so he heard it at this church— And what do you know his reaction to have been? Well, at the time, Dr. King was so moved by the song. He was still the pastor of Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And on his way back to Montgomery, he stopped in at Atlanta, where his father was the pastor of Ebenezer and his mother was the uh, choir director. And he told her about it. He encouraged her to have the Ebenezer Baptist Church start singing the song. And then as he went back to Dexter Street, he had his choir start performing it as well. And so he spread it to Atlanta and then to uh, his his environs. Yeah, Alabama. King apparently encouraged Mahalia Jackson to record the song, which she did in 1963. Uh, Let's hear some of her version. Okay. I can I'm 
singing their song. You know my living I understand you spoke with Coretta Scott King about this song. What did she tell you? That when she had heard the song and saw how Dr. King was moved by it, she realized that this was a song that defined Dr. King, his life. I mean, when you think about the lyrics of the song, when you think about how it says, if I could help somebody as I pass along, if I can help somebody with a word or a song. Now, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right there, he entered a word, a song, or a prayer. If I can cheer somebody with a word, a prayer, a song. That's how Dr. King looked at it. He looked at the Montgomery bus boycott, which was going on at the time. And when he thought about it, he said, you know what? The people we're dealing with, they're not evil. They're not bad people. They just know no better. So if I can help them with a song or a word to show how they're traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. It goes on to say, if I can do my duty as a good man ought, if I can bring back beauty to a world uprought. Let's not forget that Dr. King was a Baptist minister. And the the final part of that is says, if I can spread love's message as the master taught, then my living shall not be in vain. And mind you, everything he did was in a peaceful manner as the master taught and helping someone along the way as the master taught. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as the master taught. (laughs) So it resonated with Dr. King and it was something that was deep in his heart. It stirred his soul. And it turns out that If I Can Help Somebody was a song he first heard in in Denver. On February 4th, 1968, just two months before he was assassinated, Dr. King gave a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And in it, he imagined his own funeral and said he wanted to be remembered for serving others, not for his fame or his accomplishments. And uh, he ended the sermon by quoting from If I Can Help Somebody. So let's, let's listen to that. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a well song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. What goes through your mind when you hear that sermon? What goes through my mind was Dr. King came to terms with the fact that he was going to die that he was going to die in the service of the civil rights movement. See, Dr. King was receiving, on average, 50 death threats a day. 
he said to Mrs. King and to his family that this was the sermon that he wanted to be eulogized with. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Vern L. Howard chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission. From music now to dance, that's the art form Cleo Parker Robinson has used to explore social justice. She was born in Denver's historically black Five Points neighborhood during segregation. I sat down with the choreographer in 2015 and asked why she feels compelled to blend social commentary and dance. Well, I think it's a lot about how I was raised. I was born in Denver in Five Points and, of course, at the Rossonian. And I was able to grow up and integrated. Even though it was segregated, the music brought people together. And it's it was so magical for me that I thought that the world should be that way. And then I moved to Dallas, and it was really segregated. And I didn't see people from other cultures at all from where I lived. So I I've always been inspired to tell our stories and bring us together through the arts. Okay, you mentioned the Rossonian. This is the hotel in Five Points. Many of the great jazz musicians played and stayed there. And this was like your first apartment with your parents. I know you were an infant around that time, but what what do you um, know about living there? What what stories have you heard? I hear all the stories. You know, the great Charlie Burrell, the bass player, said he brought me home from the hospital because my father was working and he said, you know, musicians were there all the time. My father played music. My my mother was a classical musician, but my father, a jazz musician, and they loved the music. And I hear about it all the time. But I, I didn't move too far from Five Points, so I always knew about what was going on at the Rossonia. But you had um, mixed-race parents. Yes. How was that perceived in that era? Well, you know, my father's African-American and my mother was white. You know, so at that time, during the Jim Crow laws, they couldn't even get married in Denver. They had to go to five different states before they got married. So it was really about love. And uh, even in the Rossonia, it was the only hotel for blacks. So having my mother uh, married to my father was really quite rare. But uh, somehow they managed to allow her to stay there, even though it was for blacks only. You know, what I have heard also is that black musicians were welcome in predominantly white clubs. You know, bring your talents and we'll we'll fill the seats. But they were not welcome then to stay in white oh, hotels, for instance. And this is why yeah. so many of them would go to the Rossonian. Oh, that absolutely. That was yeah. the only hotel. And so it, it, it was really quite marvelous in some way because Duke Ellington and Count Basie, I heard, and Billie Holiday ended up staying in, in our community's homes because there wasn't room in the Rossonia, and that was the only hotel. So things worked out in uh, kind of magical ways. So your company has done some controversial work, uh, such as Southland by the late choreographer Catherine Dunham. It depicts the lynching of a black man falsely accused of rape by a white woman. It premiered in Chile in the early 1950s, after which it was shut down by the U.S. Embassy, which claimed the dance was anti-American. It didn't paint a pretty picture of the country. Um, The dance was virtually lost until your company chose to perform it, I think, in 2012. Is that right? Yeah. Why was it important to you to revive it? Well, you know, I have been... um I've mentored with Catherine Dunham. She was my mentor for many years. And I would study with her in East St. Louis, although I knew about her when I grew up because my father would play Harry Belafonte's music and we'd do the calypso around. And anytime Catherine Dunham's dancers came on television, 
we were all sitting in front of the the tube at that point. Huh. So I knew about her. But later, studying with her in New York and then uh, in East St. Louis, I began to really um, carry on her legacy. So I love dancing dances that she danced. So a lot of them were quite popular. They were very Americana and very entertaining. And uh, she represented the country. She represented the U.S. and Japan. But when she did Southland, she spoke about it. And she spoke about Julie Belafonte playing the the role of the white woman and how painful it was for her to do it. Is is that Harry Belafonte's wife? Yes, it's his former wife. Former wife, And she came uh, to Denver and had staged other ballets for us, but they always talked about Southland. And it was a great desire. By the time Miss Dunham was 90, uh, I think we asked her, what would she want to do most in her life? And she had done everything and performed all over the world. She said, I would love very much to have Southland reconstructed. So it was sort of like her last wish Hmm. and um, asked us to do that. Did she get to see the show? She did not. But she knew we were going to uh, delve into it and find the archives, find the scores, find the material. Uh, her husband did the the wonderful sets. So it was very hard to find all of these things. But we did mount it and we took it to the University of Florida after we permitted it at the Newman Center. You did choreo archaeology. Yes, way, we did. You? That was way deep. Yeah. <laughs> You grew up in such a musical home. How did dance become a part of your life? You should be a trumpet player. Right, right. I did play the piano. I loved playing piano. But I loved to move. You couldn't stop me from moving. So everyone would say to my parents, she's going to be a dancer. She's going to be a dancer. And my father would always say, she's going to be a doctor. She's going to be a doctor. (laughs) Right. They had been poor musicians and probably wanted something different for you. That's right. But my father danced and taught us all to dance. You know, like the, uh, oh, oh, we'd watch television. We'd see a lot of the baseball games and, you know, so on. But as soon as the commercial came on with a bit of music, he would have us all get up and do a few little ditties and move. And, of course, at the Rossonia was the, the um, dance hall. So he was always dancing. He and my mother danced all the time. I, I'm not sure I knew that. So it was yeah. a dance hall as well. Yes. And you would have, you would have seen a lot oh, of yeah. dance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was the... Um, Hotel Casino Hotel, and, right. and it was the uh, ballroom. So, did so you, big bands played there, like Duke Ellington. Yeah. Did you get introduced then to ballet, like many young girls, oh, yes. or was it is it ballroom? Or no, no, I got introduced really early uh, to Cavilla and Parker, uh, Frida Ann and Lillian, uh, because my father worked at the Bombies. I think she was a founder of the Colorado, the Colorado Ballet. ballet. Yeah. So I did early when I came back from Dallas, which was really traumatic, and I was told that I would never walk. It was really a traumatic moment living in Dallas because I wasn't so used to being really segregated. Um, my, my mother was white. My father wasn't with us. And we were in a totally black community with no white people around because it was – so we really almost had to hide my mother. It was really quite bizarre. So moving back to Denver, my father got the job at the Bombay Theater. So I was around 13. And from that day on, I went into musical theater – and I found out about this wonderful Lillian and Frida Ann and the ballet, and that was it. I started um, studying and um, going to New York then. In the stories that you have peppered us with, we've heard lots of different locales. So you've been in St. Louis, you've been in Texas, you also spent uh, your prime dancing years in New York City, but you chose to return to Denver oh, yes. in, in your adult life. Um, just briefly, why? You know, I... I 
felt so connected to family. Um, I went to Colorado Women's College, even though I was in New York. I um, began a school early, uh, right out of right out of college. I was teaching at CU, and I loved dance, even though I was studying pre med and doing all that that I think my parents would have loved. But I loved dance. But when I went to New York at nineteen. I felt as though we were somewhat cheated in Denver, that everyone saw Denver as a kind of kowtow. So therefore, I wanted to make a difference here for young people to be exposed to the arts. And you appear to have no regrets about that decision. No regrets. I love every bit of it, every day of it. You still dance yourself in addition to doing choreography? I do. I I do. I dance every year and granny dances to a holiday drum. (laughs) I do. And I have a ball. That is Denver choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson. We spoke in 2015 about her life and career. Her company, Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Ensemble, will perform a version of Romeo and Juliet coming up in April and May. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News. Thanks for being with us.